All right, if you're an adult and you want to hang out with other adults, sit right where you are and prepare for an adventure. So it's good to be with you guys uh, today. Oh, we got a full house up there in the balcony. What's up, balcony? Good to see you guys. Um, it's good to be with you. Uh, curious to see what God is going to do this morning. It was, um, you know, worship was awesome this morning, but if you arrived at, you know, seven or eight or whatever when the worship team here, it was like a total disaster. Like, I had poop on my shoe and was like walking all around and we were like, it was, it was a mess. Anyway, the Lord has shown up. So, uh, and I wasn't, that wasn't like a euphemism. That was literal. It was a real, real disaster. So sorry if it smells over in this area. That's where I brought the poop. Okay. And back to the Bible. So we're in 1 Samuel. We've looked at Hannah, Samuel, Eli, and his sons. This morning, we're going to look at this really interesting story. Uh, It's about the Ark of the Covenant uh, and how people make all kinds of assumptions about God and kind of like through religious objects. Our story begins in the fourth chapter of 1 Samuel. Israel has gone out to meet the Philistines in battle. And uh, as the story unfolds, uh, they they lose this battle. And they say to themselves, verse 3, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Now, a little background. Uh, In the Bible, we learn the the Ark or the Ark of the Covenant is kind of like this wooden box that's covered in gold and it contains three things. It contains the stone tablets Moses takes uh, from Sinai down. It has Aaron's staff, which budded in the wilderness, and then it also has a jar with manna in it to remind the people of Israel that God is their provider. Now, this Ark of the Covenant is placed within the Tent of Meeting, which is where Israel meets with God in the wilderness, uh, and it's set in the holiest place, the Holy of Holies, just like it will be uh, in the Holy of Holies uh, in the the temple uh, as history unfolds. Now, who here was old enough to watch Raiders of the Last Ark in the 80s? Who here was old enough to watch it like 20 years later? There you go. Okay, so most of us have seen it. In the movie, you have this idea of the Ark of the Covenant, and there's this character. I don't know if it's Sean Connery. I was trying to practice a Sean Connery accent, but I think it's actually one of the Germans who said it. It's like, right, it says something like, whoever has the Ark is invincible. You know, Sean Connery would be like, can someone, I'm not even going to try. Okay. Yeah, it's clearly, yeah, do it, do it. I will not give in to taunting. All right. But clearly the Israelites watched it because this is exactly what they think too. Right? And it was common actually in the ancient Near East uh, for people to sort of see the presence of a deity uh, or use like an idol uh, as a way to sort of like carry the presence of their God into battle, right? So they're looking at the ark and they're thinking, I'm going to carry the presence of God in the ark into battle to guarantee victory, right? And Israel's neighbors are all doing this with their idols and Israel's like, well, if they do it, why don't we do it? 
maybe it'll work for us. Israel brings the ark into their camp. The people give a mighty shout. The Philistines hear it and they say to themselves, a God has come into the camp. And they were afraid. Verse 7. Then 7 and 8, they say to this. This is the Philistines talking to each other, hearing the ark has come in. They say, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. You know, woe to us. I love the double woe. Okay, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptian with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines. Lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. It's pretty interesting, right? They assume that because the ark has come into a camp, they assume that God has come into the camp, who in fact is the maker of the ark and not the ark. And this is a really important difference. It's also fascinating that the Philistines have some idea. They've heard stories of this God, right? They, they get some of the details wrong, but like they're telling stories about what God has done, right? That God has shown up and brought plagues upon the Egyptians. They assume this happened in the wilderness. It didn't, but that's okay. They have this amazing halftime pep talk, right? Take courage! It's really effective, and they actually meet the Israelites in battle with the ark, and the Philistines win. In the process, Eli's sons die, which was predicted or prophesied in chapter 2. Eli actually falls and breaks his neck, and there's another few stories that unfold. But I want to focus and bring us into chapter 5 and 6, which are really unique in the Hebrew Bible. They're unique for a few reasons, but mainly because they almost entirely take place in the Philistine territories. They almost entirely are about how a person or a people group outside of Israel are assuming God will be like. Now, in a bit of context, in the ancient world, this idea of like kidnapping other people's idols or religious objects was kind of common. Uh, so you'd like kidnap it or capture it and then you basically would sort of assume that you had power over it. And maybe you'd bring it into your temple and you'd sort of like give your God the power of the captured God. Kind of make sense? So like uh, in Ugaritic literature, this is sort of important, Dagon is the father of Baal. Uh, so like the Philistines would imagine, okay, we're going to take the ark, bring it into our temple, and then our God, Dagon, will absorb the power of Yahweh. They think they've won, everyone's happy. And then, verse 3, and when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Right? So they have this idea, we're going to take the ark. We've won it. Yes! High fives, champagne, the whole thing. Right? They bring the ark into the temple of Dagon, and what happens? They wake up the next morning, they go in, and they're like, oh, this shouldn't happen. We, Dagon should have absorbed the power of the ark in Yahweh. Instead, he's falling on his face. Simply, he's worshiping. 
He's worshiping the God of Israel. Hoping it's an accident, the Philistines replace Dagon back on his stool or whatever. Verse 4, when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Day one, Dagon is worshiping face down. Day two, he is decapitated and dismembered, worshiping face down. Now, while this is humorous to us, if you are in Philistine right now, you are not laughing. You are freaking out. Verse 6, it gets worse. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors in both Ashdod and its territory. This is not the way it's supposed to be, right? Dagon was the victor. He's not supposed to be dismembered and decapitated. This isn't going according to plan. So what the Philistines do is, you have to sort of imagine this. The Philistines uh, basically have five major cities in their area, but they all operate independently. So it's kind of like states in a federation, but more loosely organized than that. So these five cities, they decide, we're going to come together and we're going to have a national assembly because this is a really big deal. There's a God in Ashdod who is not cooperating. And they think, you know, Ashdod, it's a great city, one of our top five. But the thing is, we have a bigger city, Gath. Let's bring the ark to Gath because the power of our gods is surely going to be stronger there. Let's bring them. So they bring the ark to Gath. Verse 9, after they brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. Here again, panic, fear, tumors. Now they try and move it again, this time to Ekron, smaller, but one of the big five. And the people of Ekron literally stop the ark at the wall and are like, what are you doing? You cannot bring it here. Verse 10, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They're like, this is not cool. You cannot pass the ark from city to city thinking it is going to solve your problem. So now the ark is sitting outside the city of Ekron. The Philistines call another national assembly and they decide this, verse 11, send away the ark of God of Israel, and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. They realize at this moment, their religious assumptions are not working. Right? The ark and this God doesn't seem to play by their rules. So they decide to send it back to Israel. And there's this fascinating line in verse 12. It says this, the cry of the city went up to heaven. The Philistines cry out to heaven, to God, to Yahweh. Which if you're a reader of the, New, or the Old Testament, right, you hear the echo back, you hear the hyperlink back to Exodus 2. 
Israel is enslaved in Egypt, right? And what do they do? They cry out to heaven. And what happens? God hears their cry. Right? This chapter begins with the Philistines thinking that they have conquered the God of Israel. And now, as the chapter ends, they're crying out to him for mercy. Which brings us to chapter 6. Away go the Philistine politicians, right? The political solutions have not worked. The national assemblies have not worked. Instead, now they bring in their religious diviners and priests in verse 2. And these religious priests and diviners come up with a plan. This plan, right, they would have been trained in how to deal with like sacred objects. They tell the politicians, all right, guys, you can't, you got to just send the ark back. But this is the thing, you need like a guilt offering to send the ark back. When you send the ark back, you need a guilt offering to send it back with. So let's make some gold tumors and mice, verse 5. Now, while the text at this point hasn't mentioned mice or rats, one theory is that these rats are carrying bubonic plague and they're causing the tumors and that God has sent these rats in to cause the tumors to cause this whole uproar. And these diviners know, well, if you're going to appease an angry God, what you must do is give him the appropriate gifts. And they assume this is, in this moment, golden rats and tumors, right? And, and it, this is actually, there's a language here, it's called sympathetic magic, right? So it's kind of like voodoo, right? So with voodoo, you have like, you create a stand-in that kind of represents something else. They're sort of thinking in these terms, right? Well, if you're going to appease this God, what you do need is you need some sort of stand-in that you can send back so that that God is appeased. That's how these diviners and the ancient Near East are thinking. In addition, they set up a process to discern how this ark should go back. What they do is they create a, a cart out of brand new wood, and they put the ark on it, and then they get two cows that are literally like barely done weaning, and all they want to do is be with their young. So then they attach these two cows that have never pulled a cart that really just want to be with their young, and they assume, well, if these cows bring the ark back to Israel and they don't return to their young, obviously the God of Israel has made this happen, because all these cows want to do is go back to their young. So they set the cows off, Right? And the cows walk straight back to Israel. It's also worth noting, though, when these diviners and these priests are talking to the people, giving them a plan for what to do, I love what they say in 1 Samuel 6.6. 6. This is them talking to their people. This is a Philistine priest talking to Philistines. Why should you harden your hearts? As the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts, after he had dealt severely with him, did they not send the people away? And they departed. Isn't it fascinating? They brought the ark into their temple thinking, game over. And now you have Philistine priests basically telling Philistines, don't harden your hearts. This God doesn't play by our rules. And if you step back a second and you think about in the time of Judges, Israel is almost never recounting their own story of the Exodus. 
They're doing what is right in their own eyes. And in this story, what do we see? The Philistines are preaching to each other because of what they are learning about God. Do not harden your hearts. Verse 12, And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. They're just like following, like, come on, this isn't going to happen. Like, they're going to turn back, right? But they follow them all the way to the border. God is clearly directing these cows that just want to be with their young to bring the ark back to Israel. And the people of Beth Shemesh, they're harvesting wheat and they see the ark coming and they get all excited and they take this cart and they make a burnt offering. And some of the men of the town get this idea. They think, well, now the ark's back, right? It's out in the field. It's not tucked away in the holy of holies in the tabernacle. It's in a field that's stopped by this rock and we can just kind of climb up this rock and let's look inside. And all these men who do this die. And the people of Beth Shemesh say this, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? It's interesting, it wasn't only the Philistines who needed to learn about the fear of the Lord. Right? The people of Beth Shemesh, they didn't fear God. They didn't have any awe for His presence. They didn't understand the sanctity of the ark any more than the Philistines did. It's the time of judges. They just do what is right in their own eyes. After this, the people of Beth Shemesh, they decide, we don't want the ark here anymore. And just like the Philistines, they send it to the town next to them. They value self-preservation more than self-disclosure because they don't tell the town next to them why they're sending it off. Super shady. That's kind of the story for this morning. Kind of an interesting story. And it begs the question, at least for me, like, so you have this story in the Scriptures. Why is it there? What is this story about the ark going to the Philistines and all these assumptions people have about it? What does this have to say to us? However many thousands of years later, like, how is this even relevant? There are two things I want to highlight. First is this, I just think this story really warns us not to put God in a box. Israel puts God in a box by equating the ark, a wooden box, with God. Right? They think they can just bring God to their side to win a battle, controlling Him like they can control a piece of wood. The Philistines do the exact same thing, right? They assume that if they put this box into their temple at the foot of their idol, Dagon, this will ensure Yahweh's defeat. But in both cases, though, with Israel and the Philistines, they put God in a box, and as a result, they do not only not see who God is, but they actually suffer as a result, Walter Brueggemann has this quote 
says this, God will not be captured, contained, assigned, or managed by anyone or anything for any purpose. And yet, the people of Israel keep doing this. We see it in 1 Samuel, in Jeremiah 7, as the people of Israel are facing exile, they're tempted to trust in the temple, just like in this chapter, Israel's tempted to trust in the Ark of the Covenant. You get into the first century, and people in the first century are thinking, if only... If only I just go to to the temple once a week, I can do whatever I want the other six days. Sound familiar? Truth is, the church has done this throughout history too. It's just kind of a crazy story. In 1402, the Sacra Sintola, which was thought to be the belt of the Virgin Mary, was said to be paraded around the city of Florence when it was surrounded by an enemy. Right? Because a sacred religious object is going to protect us. Just like the Ark of the Covenant. And even now, sometimes I think we approach church and salvation and life with Jesus like this. I raise my hand one Sunday, I get my ticket to heaven, and I'm good. All I need to do is attend church on Sunday. All I need to do is read my Bible. All I need to do is listen to a, the right podcast or read the right books or do the right practice, able, or whatever. But we cannot box God. When I was in Washington, I was uh, pastoring a church up there, and, you know, we'd have folk come by and visit, and I'd ask him, you know, what'd you think, you know? Was it terrible? You know, whatever. Uh, And they'd say, no, I liked it. And I was like, what do you like? They're like, Man, uh, your teaching was, quote-unquote, right on. And this happened enough times. I started picking up on this. Like, what does right on mean? And the more I dug, the more I realized that what they were telling me is, we really love coming here because you tell us what we already believe. I started thinking about it, and I'm like, I don't know if I like that reason. I'm just basically affirming what you already think? Like if they had said to me, you know what, Tony, I sense the presence of God in this place. You know, Tony, I I came and I, I had sin in my life and I was convicted and I fell on my face in repentance before God in this place. Or I came out and I thought, you know what? I want to follow Jesus with all of my heart and my soul and my strength. Man, I want to be here next week. Okay, right on. I can get behind that. You affirmed what I was already thinking. The thing is, I can pretty much say with certainty that pretty much every single person who told me that, the whole time they were at our church, I don't think they really grew. My experience was that they weren't really open to the new thing that God wanted to do in them. Right? They were blind to their own blindness. And the truth is, in church, we can get stuck 
in ruts of our own expectations and assumptions based on what God has done in our life. And we assume that's the way God always is going to be in our life. When, um, when our family came down to do the church plant here, um, so five, almost five years ago, one of the things that stood out to me is I didn't think this was going to be that kind of place. I remember this story. Such a profound story. You have this group of, I don't know, 50 average, you know, 60 to 80-year-olds that have been in this place 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And things, it was hard here. Right? They'd come to this season where it was hard, and they were given this choice. They said, the person was standing up here and said to them, your church is a field. You're in one corner. God is in the other corner. And God is in a bulldozer in his corner. And you are standing in your corner with the keys to the bulldozer. And God is reaching out his hands saying, will you give me the keys to the bulldozer so I can see, do what I want with this field? This group of people had a choice to be in control or to give God the keys and see what he would do. If you were here, raise your hand if you were here at that moment. Look around. I want you to, it's like 10 or 15 of those folks in here this morning, ask them whether it was worth it. They have seen a resurrection in this place because they let go of control. We get stuck because we start holding so tightly onto our lives, we stop allowing God to be the God of our life. Ask them whether it was worth it. And what you'll hear time and time again is we let God show up and he brought life. Do you want life? Do you want to experience the resurrection power of Jesus? You have to not put God in a box of your own expectations, but allow him to be the God of the universe who brings life from death. Another interesting thing about this story, at least to me, is that God continues to communicate to the Philistines despite their boxed assumptions about God. Do you notice that? They put the ark in with Dagon. God makes Dagon feel prostrate, right? Then he pulls Dagon apart, right? He does this so that the Philistines know who he is. Right? They're actually not looking for Yahweh. They want a box that their God can absorb. But Yahweh communicates them nonetheless. Right? Even the plagues they experience, the tumors, all this stuff, is designed to help them understand who He is. They actually have a similar function to the plagues in Egypt. 
If you read the Exodus narrative again, what you'll see is the purpose of the plagues is repeatedly said to be so that the people know that I am the Lord your God. Right? The purpose of the plagues is to, for God to reveal who He is to the Egyptians. Right? The Pharaoh isn't God, the Yahweh is. It's pretty interesting. When they start to see Yahweh for who He is, they start to realize that, oh, He's not someone to be trifled with. They actually start to experience fear. And throughout the Scriptures, we see this connection between a healthy fear of who God is and actually the beginning of worship and wisdom. Proverbs 1-7, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? Go back to Genesis 3. What happens? Right? They eat from the tree. Why? Because they're not afraid of God. What happens though? When God shows up, they're afraid and they hide. Better to have the fear of God than be afraid of God after He shows up. God reveals Himself to the Philistines, and this leads the Philistines actually to seek out who He is. Right? They start talking with each other. Maybe even they go back and start reading like, wait, so what happened in Egypt? Right? They start preaching to one another. Don't harden your hearts. I think this has a lot of relevance today for us for a few reasons. One, I think some of us in this room have boxed God in by our own expectations, our own doubts, our own fears, our worries and anxieties. And I think there's a word of hope to us to say, yeah, God overcame the Philistines' assumptions. Maybe He can overcome ours as well. Even in our brokenness, even in our fear and in our failure, God still wants to reveal Himself to us. I also think, though, this has relevance because most of us have secular friends who worship at the temple of secularism or atheism or think that God, Yahweh, is some character in some old book that has no relevance for our everyday life. And this story reminds us that God wants to communicate with them as much as He wants to communicate with us. Right? If you go back to the Exodus story, one of the things that's clear, the plagues come and what happens? Some of these Egyptians actually go with the people of Israel into the wilderness. They experience the power of God and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm going with him. And while the text doesn't say it here, I wonder if some of these Philistines, after this experience, are actually worshiping Yahweh. I think this story really invites us to pay kind of close attention to the ways that God might be at work and communicating among our secular friends. I think often we put way too much pressure on ourselves and we pay way too little attention to how God is already at work revealing himself in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces and in our families and in our communities and on our street. I want to invite you over the next few months as we lead up to Easter to start praying for people who do not experience much of Jesus in your life. I have these, we have these little uh, like pray for five bookmarks at that entrance and that one. And I just want you to identify five people in your life that you actually see 
on some kind of a regular basis that are not experiencing much of Jesus and just start praying for them. And not just praying for them, but also asking God to reveal to you how he is already at work in their hearts and in their minds and in their daily, everyday patterns. Because God loves them and wants to communicate who he is as much to them as he does to you. And as we do this, I think we need to remember, we need to remember that Yahweh, the way of Jesus is better than all the Dagons and the gods of this world. I think it's important for us to keep this in mind because sometimes when we enter into sort of the secular culture we enter in and we're wondering, we sometimes, if we're not paying attention, we'll actually be converted by secularism and our culture rather than actually bringing the gospel and good news to people outside church walls. We cannot forget that God's way is always better than our culture and its gods. And sure, we don't have little idols Like, most of our friends don't have little idols in their houses, but our culture does have gods. Whether it's technological or sexual, material, ideological, or political. Right, when we enter, when the ark enters Dagon's temple, the authors of 1 Samuel are framing this as a confrontation. Who is better? Right? And Yahweh wins. And when Israel rereads this story, they're reminded, oh, okay, as I wade into my cultural moment, I need to remember that Yahweh is better and not be seduced by that cultural moment and those cultural gods. And the truth is, we need to be especially careful. Right now, there are right, people in Silicon Valley that are trying to get you to worship at a technological altar to captivate your attention on a phone, on a device, wherever, right? There are politicians in D.C. and around the world that are trying to get you to lean in and lynch on to hope that they offer. We are a people who worship Yahweh. We need to remember that Yahweh's way is better and not be seduced in our cultural moment by the powerful people who say, this is the way and walk in it. As we shift towards worship, um, I'd like to focus on something said by the men of Beth Shemesh at the end of chapter 6. They ask this, who is able to stand before the Lord? this holy God. We worship a God who cannot be boxed. We worship a God who is revealing himself in the world. Who can stand in his presence? This God of power and might and glory who created the heavens and the earth that took on human flesh to rescue us. In the 24th Psalm, uh, which is written by David, who it turns out in 2 Samuel 6 actually carries the ark back to Jerusalem. In the 24th Psalm, he asks the same question, who shall stand in the holy place? Who can stand in the presence of our holy God? And he says this, he who has clean hands 
and a pure heart. And as we enter worship and the worship team comes up, that's, that is my prayer. That we would be a people with clean hands. Hands as we move into this world carrying the gospel. They would be washed by Jesus. They would be a people of pure heart that are worshiping Jesus alone that we are living under the reign of Jesus. We're not bending a knee to other cultural gods. Whether it's political, whether it's technological, sexual, material, whatever. There are so many ways that we can be corroded by our cultural moment. Are we a people who are going to stay, have clean hands and a pure heart? I just want to invite us as we go into worship to remember that we're not just sitting in pews in a building in 14th and Central in a small town on the coast, but we are entering the presence of a living God who is a living hope. Who is here today and one day he will enter into human history and make all things new. He is a God who is not limited by natural phenomenon. He is a God who does miracles. He is a God who brings life out of death. God, we enter your presence. God, we recognize that you are here. God, I pray that you would shatter the boxes of our expectations. God, I ask that you would soften our hearts, that we would not have hard hearts. God, I pray that we would listen to the preaching of people that don't even know you. God, and be convicted of the ways that we are defending our hearts and our minds and our souls against you. God, I pray that as you sit there in the bulldozer today, God, we would open our hands and say, come Holy Spirit, do a new work in us. You are the gardener, you are the architect, you are the shepherd. Convict us of our sin. Lead us to life everlasting. God, may we not settle based on what you have done in our lives, but you look forward to the good things you bring. have this sense that some of us are just really stuck. We're carrying some pain of disappointed prayers. Times when we ask God to come in and feel like, what the heck, God? Jesus, I pray that you would breathe life into that doubt. You would bring life into that fear. You would breathe life into that anxiety. God, you would bring life. Thank you, Lord.